spend 18% or so, 18% plus of our gross domestic product on health care. Most of the developed countries spend 10 or 11 or 12% of their GDP on health care. And if you look at the outcomes that are achieved in terms of life expectancy and various disease processes, we're not at the top of the chart. Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I'm a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Shmuel Welcome to this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, the podcast which is created as a resource for the nursing home professionals, for those in the industry to know what is really going on and to get the tools and resources and information necessary uh, to be even more successful in providing care for our residents. Today's guest I am very happy to introduce is Mark Parkinson, which many of you already know. We know that Mark is the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association, former governor of Kansas. And before I put too many words in Mark's mouth, Mark, welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here today. So, Mark, for those who have not um, come across, then they are not familiar with you. Do you mind just briefly sharing how you got into into this space? And then we can move on to some of the other more timely uh, topics that we'd like to discuss today. Sure. Well, I I bet I'm like a lot of the listeners, uh, which is that it it didn't happen, you know, intentionally. It happened just sort of accidentally. Um, And for me, I was a state senator. Uh, I was being lobbied to tour an assisted living facility. Uh, This was back in the early 1990s when, at least in Kansas, assisted living was brand new. Uh, I was completely blown away by how cool it was to take care of older people in a residential setting. And that day, literally, my wife and I decided that we wanted to build an assisted living facility. We thought we would just have one, but one thing, one did led to another. And before you knew it, we had built and we're operating 10 different facilities, including assisted living facilities, dementia facilities, and nursing homes. And we loved it. I mean, it's incredibly hard, as your listeners know. It's incredibly rewarding and, you know, often all at the same time. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a great life. Awesome. So I mean, it's, it's, you're uniquely uh, qualified in the respect that you're not coming from a, just a policy standpoint and just as a support organization but you're, so to speak, one of us who understand the day-to-day challenges, or now you're in your, in your current role, you're able to expand and broaden the reach um, of what you're doing. So right now we know that we, there are a lot of changes um, in general terms in the SNF and the long-term care industry. Um, what, what, what do you see just on a broad level? Let's say with the five, you know, without the PDPM, we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, on a broad level, where do you see the industry going in the next, you know, three sure. to five years? Yeah. So if you look at it at the highest possible level and you step back and you look at, at, at long-term care or really healthcare in general, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we have come out at, we've come from a fee for service model for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are evolving into a population health management model where we won't get paid based upon a, a day by day fee for service type rate. Instead, we'll be part of a broader system that is highly incentivized to keep costs down and and quality outcomes up. Um, And we're really like in just like the third inning of that transition. So that's that's at a super high level. Um, at At a more intermediate level, the payments that we have within that transition themselves are changing, as you referred to on PDPM. But the the change from um, fee for service to kind of a population health management model is a very big deal, and that's the major trend that's occurring in all of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Now, w- what is the push that is making this change happen, going from fee for service to population health, and is that good or <clears throat> or otherwise for the residents who are receiving the care in these facilities? Sure. Well, the push for it is just this reality. We spend 18% or so, 18% plus of our gross domestic product on healthcare. Most of the developed countries spend 10 or 11 or 12% of their GDP on healthcare. And if you look at the outcomes that are achieved in terms of life expectancy and various disease processes, we're not at the top of the chart. And so all of the think tanks and academics and people that set policy have said, we need to head more towards a population health management type system like you see in the rest of the world as opposed to the fee-for-service that we have here. The impact on nursing homes specifically, just to bring it to a real thing, it Mm -hmm. depends on how smart the operators are. If the operators are ahead of this and become part of the solution and part of the entity that owns the population health management, they're going to do great. If they just sit back and sort of let this happen, uh, they then become a commodity in a much different world, and they're not going to do very well. Mm Mm-hmm. So basically, the operators who are going to embrace the change and see it as an opportunity to be reimbursed in a way that is it's really better for everybody, um, as you touched on, um, those, are, those are the ones who are going to come out ahead. But you know, those who are going to be stuck in their ways, for them, is going to be more challenging. Now, what is the connection between the, cha- the, different, the payment model from fee-for-service to population health with the healthcare results that you mentioned earlier that we see in other countries who spend less of their GDP on healthcare, um, why, why is that assumption that changing our payment model can uh, be a first step in rectifying the situation? Well, a really good example are institutional special needs plans, which 22 providers, nursing home providers have now become. When you become an institutional special needs plan, you become a managed care, a Medicare managed care insurance company for the people that live in your building. And you receive a set amount of money from CMS to take care of their Medicare needs. If, if, they, if you end up spending less than the amount that you get, you make money. If you end up spending more than the amount that you get, you lose money. So the the incentive is to keep your residents incredibly healthy so you don't have to pay for any medical bills because they're they're doing fine and they don't have any medical bills. And so that's where you see the marriage of um, quality and uh, saving money. It saves money because there's less spent, there's less spent because there's an incentive to quality, 
and the person that owns the plan makes a lot of money if they can keep everybody healthy. If you give people incentives to keep residents healthy, if you give them financial incentives, they will do it. Wow. So, I mean, this is the general shift um, that, that we're seeing now is that for the first time, at least in recent history, we're seeing that the payment models and the clinical outcomes are, you know, they're in sync. That if you want to be successful financially, you also need to be successful clinically. And we don't need to have administrators and directors of nursing. You know, you don't need an administrator pushing for extra rehab time and then, you know, director of nursing, no, 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 that's not what the patient needs because now we can focus together um, on the same result, uh, which like, you know, I mentioned everybody wins that way. Now, if we can jump specifically. Yeah, go ahead. uh, if we can jump specifically to PDPM, which we know is coming October 1st, um, how do you think that's going to affect the feasibility and the profitability of nursing home owners who fit into the category that you mentioned, or in operators who are willing and to do whatever it takes um, to embrace it properly? How is that going to affect, A, the care that they're able to provide, and B, the success and profitability of their companies? I think they're going to do really well um, because the companies that have already embraced value-based purchasing and focusing on quality, not just because it's the right thing to do, but as a, as a financial strategy, mm-hmm. they are already doing many of the things that you're required to do in PDPM for it to be successful. They are already identifying all of the various issues that go into a resident that may be negatively impacting them from a health perspective which is what PDPM requires. It requires a a robust evaluation of the resident to make sure that we code all of the challenges that they face. And they're already right now adopting care strategies that aren't just therapy. Therapy is great, but there are things other than therapy. And so they're already doing that with their population health management. And so I think that people that have embraced the concept of let's look at the, all of the imp- things that are impacting the resident, let's look at all of the things that could improve the health of the resident and, and implement those, I think they're going to do really well with PDPM. Now, just to kind of get a little more granular, you know, we have a number of members that have really tried to crosswalk the PDPM payment system to the current system or crosswalked it to, to current residents, even though the system doesn't go into effect for a while they're already sort of uh, pretending like it's into effect, so they're coding them and and coming up with care plans for them. And the early reports that we get are that, you know, the members think it's going to go pretty well. Um, We won't know for sure until October 1 when it goes live, um, but we're feeling pretty good about it right now. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting. So they're like, they're pretending as if PDPM was let me make sure I understood what you said correctly, that, that it's active now and they're kind of like dual coding. They're coding what they need to do for the current system, but they're also coding what would be for PDPM and so they can see what it looks like. Is, is that what they're doing? A- absolutely. And I, I would really encourage all of your listeners to be doing that. We're so close to October 1. You don't want to be coding your first people under PDPM when it goes live on October 1. You know, whether it's just a small subset of your rehab residents or maybe for an entire building, it's really a good idea to do a bunch of practice beforehand by dual coding. I think that's a good way to, to word it, as you did, um, you know, to, 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 to prepare plans for them under both systems, the current system and then the system that will go into effect on October 1. I think that's really the best way to work the kinks out before the system starts on October 1. 
Mm-hmm. Who's the biggest uh, beneficiary of which part of the health system or even of within the nursing home facility? Who's going to gain the most by the change of PDPM? The people that are going to gain the most are people that are currently taking really sick people that don't need a lot of therapy. Because under the current system, you just don't get reimbursed right for those people because most of the reimbursement is related to therapy. Under, under PDPM, um, all of the payment areas where for other sorts of ancillary services um, are going to improve. So there's, there's a much bigger incentive under PDPM um, to take people that have all kinds of issues, uh, what, whether therapy can, can solve them or not. I think another, another group of people that will, be, that will be successful are people that can um, successfully adapt their therapy practices to the new rule. The new rule says that um, we can do group and concurrent therapy. Up to 25% of the minutes can be group and concurrent. And, you know, we don't want to do group and concurrent on everybody. We just want to do it on the people that it would be helpful for. But if you have the, the infrastructure to do group and concurrent, you know, you plan it out and you know how to do it, um, people are going to save a lot of money just on therapy minutes. So let's break that down. So can you just define for us what that means for listeners who are not familiar with what that means, group and concurrent therapy sessions? Yeah, under the current system, when you provide therapy, you only get paid for every therapy minute if you do one-on-one therapy. So if you have somebody in front of you for 50 minutes, one person, you get 50 minutes of therapy credit. Mm-hmm. If you do group, if you do group of a group of say four people in front of you under the current system, you only get credit for one fourth of each of their minutes. So you get credit for 50 minutes total for all four of them. You don't get credit for 200 minutes. Mm-hmm. Under, under PDPM, up to 25% of the minutes can be in group and concurrent, and you, and you get credit for all the minutes. So you, in that, in that scenario where you have four people in front of you for 50 minutes, you would be able to report that you had delivered 200 minutes of therapy. Now, group and concurrent isn't for everyone. It's not for every situation. There are some that do need to be handled one-on-one. But there are multiple situations that I saw in our buildings, and your listeners have probably seen, where group and concurrent make total sense. And in fact, sometimes, you know, the residents actually sort of like being with somebody else and it, it makes sure. it kind of a, there's a socializing effect and, you know, you see people sort of almost having fun with it. Right. So, you know, again, it's not, it's not a panacea, but it is 25% of the minutes. Uh, and that alone is going to um, significantly lower cost. Right. And I think a tremendous point here is for both of the points that you brought up for, you know, the sick, a resident that gets admitted almost on an acute level to the SNF and also uh, grouping together minutes. These are both cases where if we take all financial incentives out completely, and this was our mom or dad who was there and we had the resources um, to provide for them, this is how we would provide care for them. We wouldn't take somebody who is suffering from depression as their, really their primary challenge even if we might not code it as their primary diagnosis, but that's what's hurting them the most and put them through vigorous, aggressive, physical, occupational therapy necessarily, maybe to some extent, but we would be able to focus on the other things or some other, uh, you know, the physical clinical challenges that they may be uh, enduring. And at the same time, like you said, we may purposely 
have therapists working with our residents one-on-one, -on -one, and yes, incurring the cost of paying those therapists, and the residents may prefer to do a portion of it you know, together. And now through both of these changes, we're able to provide the care that we really, that's really in the, in the residents' best interest. And you know, financially, you know, it's finally lining up. So the, the, I really appreciate you pointing that out. Um, in, the, in the effort of time, I want to move on to another point. Um, you have a very broad perspective on the industry, and it's exciting um, that you have you know, the real experience. You're not talking from uh, just a political or from a policymaker standpoint. What do you think is the biggest myth that the outsider, perhaps someone who's uninformed or has not worked in this industry, believes about what a nursing home is and, and why is that not true? Well, I think, I think there are several. The one that immediately jumps to mind is I don't think that the policymakers understand how old and how frail our residents are. Um, and maybe we're at fault for that because of some of the ads that you see people running that show these active <laughs> seniors and, you know, coming off the golf course and all of that. So, you know, you read these things from the politicians that say, oh, we ought to just move all these people out of nursing homes and, and put them in home health. Um, it's, just, it's just ridiculous, as your listeners know, that, that are primarily in skilled nursing. You know, our residents are incredibly frail. Most, you know, the average age is 83, 84 in that range, and they have enormous needs. And so that means that all of these proposals to, you know, deinstitutionalize, as they say, um, these residents are just silly. Um, the other thing that it says is that it's incredibly hard to take care of these people. Um, these are not just like active seniors, you know, that are, are tearing a muscle while they're playing golf. You know, these are people that are, are so old and so frail that they just have an, an enormous number of challenges. So I'm not sure that the public really understands how incredibly hard it is um, to take care of our residents. And then the third thing that, that comes to my mind is, uh, and this will sound like an advertisement for our sector, but your listeners all know it's true, just the, the kindness and the compassion of most of the people in the sector. You know, most of the people that you're working with when you're actually on the floor in a building working a shift are people that really are passionate about the elderly and do care about it. They're not these sort of monsters that get demonized when something goes wrong and we end up on the front page of a, of a newspaper. Um, some, of the, some of the most decent, kindest people that I've ever met, you know, are, are people that are out there working 11 to 7 shifts, um, just trying to keep their lives going, but also uh, keeping the lives of the folks in our buildings going. Right. I really appreciate you sharing that last point because I mean, all of the points, but specifically that one, because our industry from our peers in other industries is so misunderstood. And for the very reason of what you said of, you know, the extreme minority of examples that, that make it to the front pages is what people assume what life is really like and what people really are in these industries. And the biggest proof of this is, and I've had conversations with some of my employees about this, is that many of these, in the, many of these roles, for example, you're, you know, the nurse is working 11 to seven, they could get paid much, much more for working those hours in other industries where if you don't do your job correctly, nobody dies, nobody gets hurt. You don't have a regulatory compliance committee that, you know, internally within the facility, you know, who's jumping down your back if something happens and uh, you don't have the, you know, the external regulatory enforcement environment it, it's really really challenging and you're dealing with someone who may never even have known who you are or cannot express 
their appreciation or may not actually appreciate it. And yet, like you said, they go in day in and day out. And that is the majority. That is the rule. That's not the exception. So I really appreciate you saying that. Now, if you don't mind me telling one quick story, I want to tell one quick story about that. I was in Des Moines about maybe four years ago speaking to the National Certified Nurse Aid Conference, NACA. I was at their annual meeting, and there were about 500 nurse aides there. And it had been after a really tough winter, a lot of snow all over the Midwest that year. Mm-hmm. So I asked, I said to the audience, please stand up if you um, had a shift this year during the winter and your car broke down in the snow and you were stuck on the side of the road in the snow. And about, you know, you know, you know that cars, unfortunately, that a lot of our CNAs have are terrible cars. And mm-hmm. so probably 40, 40 or 50 people stood up. And I said, remain standing up if you then walk through the snow more than a mile to get to work. And like 20 were still standing. And I said, continue stand up if you, were, if you walk more than five miles. And there were like 10. And then I said, continue standing up if, there were, if you walked more than 10 miles to work after your car uh, went out under the snow. And there were five people that had done that. I mean, just, just imagine the wow. commitment that people have. And that, those are the kind of people that work in our building and they never end up on a news story, but are just wow. amazing human beings. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. People don't realize that level of commitment. It's almost like with a religious fervor that they care so deeply for these people, like, like we said, that they that don't know and cannot express their appreciation. Walking 10 miles, how many people would do that in other industries? Now, just yep. as we wrap up here, what do you see as, as maybe the biggest challenge or the biggest opportunity um, besides for, I guess, PDPM, what we discussed? Let's just focus maybe on the challenge because we spoke enough about opportunities. Um, within the coming years, specifically for the nursing home operators? You know, in the short run, there's an enormous labor shortage. Um, And so as you're operating, what we hear on the operational side right now is that the biggest problem is is finding people. Um, Oddly enough, in the longer run, the problem is we're going to have too many people that need our services. Uh, We're just now hitting the part of the aging boom where the baby boomers are going to start needing us. We're still a little ways away from that, um, but it's going to be very exciting uh, and, and challenging at the same time because we're going to have a tremendous need for what we do at a, at a time when payment models are changing and it's hard to find people to take care of the residents that we have. So it's a lot of challenges, but also a lot of exciting things. Okay. Uh, I really do appreciate that. Now, if we could just go down a drop further, um, what do you attribute the, the labor shortage you know, what is the reason for that? Uh, I just think it's as simple as the fact that the national unemployment rate is so incredibly low. You know, we're basically at three and a half percent unemployment and it's as low as it's almost ever been. And when that happens, it's really hard to find workers. Um, I don't know if this is a short term thing or if we're kind of in a permanent labor shortage situation, but it is really, really tough right now. Right. I mean, and specifically, you know, referring back to the incident you just mentioned in that room where you see the type of people that is necessary, not everybody's cut out for this. You know, it's not everybody's natural skill set. So like you said, when unemployment is so low and they can easily find work elsewhere, that's going to be a challenge. Before we uh, wrap up, Mark, are there any final thoughts that you would like to share with the listeners? Um, Any words of encouragement for those who are still in the industry uh, before we let you go back to your busy schedule? 
Well, first of all, I think it's great that you have this podcast. It's it's fantastic to, to have discussions and for people that are deeply interested. If they're still listening to me after 25 minutes, they must be pretty darn interested. And so that that's great. Um, and then secondly, I just want to say, don't get discouraged. Um, even though this work is, is really, really hard, I, I, I just can't think of anything that's more rewarding and more important than taking care of people that other people who have decided that they can't take care of anymore. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but it's also an honor. Uh, and I can't tell you how much I respect the people that have committed their lives to it. And I'm, I'm just so happy to be a part of it. Okay. Uh, that, that is definitely so true. I'll add, if you don't mind, one point to that is that sometimes when we're in the industry, we almost see it as a us and a them, us the, us the professionals providing the care and them the residents who need the care. We don't realize, and I'm sure you've come across this in your experience, that uh, you know the residents are us a few years down the road. We may not end up yep. in a nursing home, may not end up in that nursing home, but you know I've had residents who were formerly you know staff at the, at the facility so that makes it a little bit more understandable and you know you can walk 10 miles in the snow when you understand that these are people that we we're, we're hoping that people do this for us or for the our loved ones you know if and when the time should come absolutely uh, great way to put it yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast mark i really appreciate this um you shared really such tremendous um insights and value to our listeners and I'm sure they'll be referring back to this many times thank you so much you bet. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with all of your friends in the nursing home industry and just tell them to head on over to the nursinghomepodcast.com. In the meantime, head on over to iTunes, leave me an honest review, take a screenshot of it and send it on over to me on LinkedIn. And I'll be sure that we send something out special just for you. Have an awesome day.